0: As we saw last week, the major theme of 2 Samuel chapter 18 was sin. And uh, what the chapter helped us to do was to draw our attention to certain aspects of sin that we seriously need to be aware of. Uh, Things like sin's curse, sin's contamination, and sin's confrontation. Basically everything that we read about kept pointing to that idea of sin. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we come to chapter 19 knowing our God and who he is. then we get to chapter 19, uh, we read nothing except for uh, grace. There is grace everywhere in chapter 19, reminding us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Amen? And as important as it is for you and I to understand sin and our sinfulness before God and what all of that means, it is equally important for you and I to understand the height and the depth and the width of God's grace. And that's what chapter 19 does for us today. It speaks all about the grace of God. Really, this scripture passage reminds me a little bit of an Oreo cookie. That's good, right? In the fact that there are kind of two ends to it, and then there is this wonderful sweet center part of it. Look, when I buy Oreo cookies, and I do buy Oreo cookies... When I buy them, I only buy double stuff. Uh, And the reason for that is because the stuff is what makes the cookie. I have no need for regular Oreo cookies, all right? It's just all cookie. And for me, that's not great. But I am willing to put up with the cookie sides if I know that there is going to be that wonderful center in the middle. And so what we're going to do is we're going to attack this text of Scripture much like an Oreo cookie. We're going to look at the beginning, we're going to look at the end, and if we survive that, then we get to enjoy the sweet center of it. So that's the, the mode of attack today. And so here's what we're going to do. The two ends may not be the sweetest, but they are necessary because they, say, they set the stage of the sweetness of God's grace that we find in the middle. So two things we're going to do. Let's look at the first and the end, what Dan, Pastor Dan ran, read in the beginning, and then we're going to look at the centerpiece, and it's going to convey two truths about God's grace first of all, number one, with the beginning and the end, we see grace greatly needed. Grace greatly needed. Anybody need the grace of God today? If you, wow, (laughs) wow, wow. (laughs) Well, I don't even know how to respond to that. Anybody need the grace today? Yeah, well, yeah, it'll be fine. Okay, well, there we go. I heard somebody clap in the back. That's uh, very nice. We need the grace of God. Now, notice, we want to pick up today where we actually left off at the end of chapter 18, and that is David and his army has defeated Absalom and his army. They've put them down, and so now that army of Israel has fled back to Israel, and they've all gone to their own homes, and now they're trying to figure out where do we go now? And we begin to pick up their thought process in verse 9. Follow, if you will. The Bible says the king, this is them speaking about David, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land of Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So here they are arguing. They're all over in Israel, and they sat there and say, "Guys, we've really blown this thing. We had the best king you can imagine, King David. He was doing what a good king does. He was defeating our enemies. He was putting away our greatest enemy, that is the Philistines. And what do we do? Do we do we thank him? Do we acknowledge him as king? No. We we sent him packing. He 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 left, and and, and he went out, and and we exchanged him for a completely different." king who we begin to adore. And then eventually we ended up going after that king, wanting to put him to death. And we would have put him to death if it had not been for God's sovereign plan to be able to rescue him and to be able to rescue his throne. And this is where we are. Now we're without a king. So I suggest that we call the king that we had to begin with and call him back to rule and reign over us. And so that's what they do. They call for David to come. But David doesn't come immediately because not everybody is desiring him to come back. Uh, Israel wants him to come back. That is the northern kingdom of Israel made up of 10 tribes. But there's another kingdom. It's the southern kingdom of Judah made up of two tribes. And they have not reached out to David yet. They haven't called upon David yet. So David very graciously doesn't wait for them to call on him, but instead he initiates the reconciliation with Judah. So he sends word through two of his priests, Zadok and Ebiathar. And this is what he says to them. He says, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? He's just simply saying, guys, this makes no sense. He goes, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes are calling me back, but you guys aren't calling me back. And the crazy thing is, is I'm one of you. I'm from Judah. I'm bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Why aren't you calling and bringing me back? Well, the answer to that would be twofold. Number one is they realize that they've really blown it. They've messed up. They've mistreated the king that God has set over them. And number two, they're scared to death of what the king will do if he comes back because they know that they are deserving of the judgment of that king for their rebellion. And so they don't ask him to come back, but David continues to take the initiative. Notice verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? Go do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Here's what he does. What David actually does is he takes Joab, and he's no longer the commander. He he, he removes him, and he replaces him. The reason he gets Joab gone is because he had specifically told Joab, don't kill and don't harm my son, deal gently with him. And his way of dealing gently was to take three spears and put it through his heart. You remember that. And so he kind of missed the point of what deal gently meant. So he's like, I need a new commander. And he gets one from the enemy that was just trying to kill him. Ambassador was the commander of, uh, of, of his son who was trying to kill him all and put him to death. So it's an act of grace of him saying here, I'm gonna show you that I have no intention to bring judgment to you, but only grace. And I'm gonna demonstrate that to the whole nation by me showing, showing mercy to the very man who had planned to be able to put me to death. And that's what he does here. Apparently, it worked. Apparently, it worked. Verse 14 says, And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent the word to the king Return, both you and I, your servants. Did you see what won them over? Their grace. King's grace won them over. They realized that he wasn't going to bring judgment, that he was going to bring goodness and grace, give them what they do not deserve, and it won their hearts over. Now, that's the first part of the cookie. Let's look at the last part of the cookie. We have to jump all the way down to verse 42. Now, after David comes into the land, we're going to read about that in a minute. When he gets back into the land, and he's there, and he's ruling from Jerusalem, people begin to complain. Look at verse 42. Because the king is our, or excuse me, in verse 41, I apologize. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? Here's what's going on. When David was about to cross over the Jordan to come back to the promised land, Israel didn't meet him there. The southern kingdom met him there. That was Judah. They made their way, helped him across the river, and brought him back to Jerusalem. Well, now Israel's a little bit angry. He's wondering why he didn't come back and rule and reign in the northern kingdom. Why is he down there with Judah? In essence, they're complaining that he, the king, was showing more grace and more mercy to the side of the kingdom than what they were showing to him. Well, David doesn't respond, but Judah does in verse 42. Notice how they respond. And they're answering their question. Why is he being better to you? They, here's their answer. Because the king is our close relative. He says, why, why then are you angry over this matter? In other words, he's saying, hey, blood is thicker than water, bro. He's one of us. He, he's from our own family. He's, he, he loves us more because he's a part, he, he is indeed one of us. But notice what they say next. They say, have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? Here's what they're saying. Israel is complaining because they don't think that David is showing enough grace and mercy to them as they are to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah sits there and goes, man, hey, we kind of deserve it. We're part of his family. But then they also tell him, don't think that he's treating us so great. Yeah, he came back and he's our, he's our savior and all. But the truth is he hasn't given us some really good food from the king's table. And it's not like he gave us a bunch of gifts or anything. So he's not really that good to us. Do you see the complaint going on? And then he turns around and then, then Israel has to come back. It's like an antiphonal section back and forth of complaining. I've heard this in churches before. In verse 43, he says, in the men of Israel, answer the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. And then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back uh, the king? So after they complain that they're not receiving enough goodness from the king, then they begin to argue of why they're more deserving of the goodness of the king. Do you see this? They go, you're two, you have two tribes, we have 10 tribes. We have more people backing him. And by the way, we were the first ones to call on the king to have him come back and reign over us. Therefore, more, more worthy of good care and graciousness of the king than you are. And then this keeps going back and forth. In fact, then Judah ends up speaking. We don't know what they say. It just says, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Do you see what's going on here? This is a picture of a group of people who are in intense need of grace. They rejected their king. They rejected their Lord. They wanted to put him to death. They tried to put him to death. When he graciously came back, and he came back for a large part because he sought out reconciliation with them— to be able to come back. When he came back, then all they did when he was reigning reigning over them was complain that they weren't getting enough, or somebody else was getting more, or what he, they were actually given was not nearly good as they would want it to be. and Then whatever they receive, they begin to complain that really ultimately it was what they ultimately deserved. Do you see yourself in this story at all? And 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 and. and, and Please do not say, I'm David, all right? Don't say that you're David in this picture. If you're reading a text of scripture, we should ask, who are we in the story? Too often times we look at David, the hero, and we go, I'm just like David, I'm the man of grace. I'm the guy that just extends grace and throws it out like it's Christmas day. No, you're not David and I'm not David. You and I are Judah and you and I are Israel. You and I, every single one of us, even if you're in faith in Christ, one day there was a day that you had rejected the kingship and the lordship of God. You rejected it. You decided you're going to do things in your own way. You don't want him ruling and reigning, and you want and sought after a new king of your own life. Most of the time, it was yourself. Other times, it could be things in this world. It's called false gods, and you let it rule and reign. And Then one day, out of God's grace, he initiated contact with you. You were not seeking after God. He came after you. He pursued you. He opened up your eyes. He convicted your heart. He let you hear the gospel, brought the good news of Jesus Christ to you. He's the one who came to you and made you realize for the first time just how guilty you were at abhorring the God who has created you. And then finally, he was good enough to be able to give you the very gift of faith to believe in him. This is grace. And then we understand that and all of us are sitting back going, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like my salvation. Well, guess what? You are in just as much need of God's grace every day after you are saved than the day that you are saved. Would you say amen to that? Because many of us, this is where I see myself as well, is being just like Israel and just like Judah who sit back and God does all these wonderful things for us. And I sit back and sit there and go, well, you know what? God's treating somebody else a lot better than he's treating me. Have you ever done that? You sit back and you go, well, they're driving a little bit better car and they're just have a little bit better house. And it seems like they don't, their kids never get sick. That wouldn't be my family. But you say that their, their kids never be able to get sick. Wow, he's being really, really nice. And then some people sit around and, and, and this is how they treat God. They sit there and go, well, you know, I got some nice things, but it's not really that like God's been that good to me. I've had a lot of difficulties in my life. I had a lot of hardships in my life. And then when God really does something great for us, you know what we usually do? Well, I kind of deserved it. Here's why I deserved it. And we give it all the reasons why God ultimately was good to me because of something that I accomplished or something I did or some type of obedience that I have. You know where I see myself? I see myself as a person of great need of grace, just like these men. Would you agree? All right, those were the cookies. Now we get to the sweet part, all right? That's where we find this, and that's where they are. And now the second thing we want to see is this, grace. We see not only grace greatly needed, now we see grace generously given. Can you say amen to that? Grace generously given. Now, let me back up. Here's a lot of stories, so be patient with me. If you haven't been following with us in this story, maybe be a little confusing, but I'm going to—confusing, especially when I speak like that—but uh, I'm going to try to give you the best understanding as, as I possibly can. When David had to flee Jerusalem and go into exile because of his son's threat, Absalom's threat against him— He ended up fleeing and going into exile. And while he was leaving, he ran into a number of different individuals on his way out. Some of those individuals were nice to David. Some of them, "Mm, not so much. Well, now that he's coming back from exile to the throne, he runs into three of these same jokers, the same ones that that, that he talked to on his way out. He's now talking on his way in. And so what we see in that is with every single one of them, he extends grace to those who are in need of it. Let me show you how he extends it. Let me show you how he gives it. First of all, grace is given to the insincere. To the insincere. There's a man by the name of Shimei. He's the first one to be able to greet David. If you don't know who that is, let me explain for a minute. Some of you might remember from chapter 16. Shimei was this really annoying guy that we read about that when David was fleeing from Jerusalem all the way down uh, outside of the Promised Land to the Jordan River, there was a little guy that we read about that was on the side of the road that was throwing dust, rocks, and insults at King David. So the whole time, 20-mile stretch, he's calling these things out. This is actually what he said to him. He said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. He says, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul and his place that you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you and you are a man of blood. That's what you call kicking somebody when they're down. He, he's saying to him, he says, you're deserving of all of this. The reason that you're, you're losing the kingdom is because of your sin, which he, in part he was right. But he says, now Absalom's going to come and rule and reign over you. Well, guess what? Things have changed. Absalom is now dead. David has been requested to come back, and now he's coming back to be on the throne. So guess who the first person to meet David is before when he's coming back into the promised land? Shimei. He's the first one. He finds out and he's like, uh-oh, this is really, really awkward. Uh, I need to make things up. So he leaves Jerusalem, goes all the way down 20 miles to the River Jordan and he doesn't wait for David to cross. He actually goes to the other side where David is and takes a thousand men with them to, to, to bring them into the, the, the promised land. So he goes over and he basically says, hey, can I help you with the luggage? Can we guys help you across the river? This can be really difficult. Let me help you. This is you know, the, you know, our, our, our moving and storage area. And here we, we got you across. And before they even get him across, as he picks up David's bags, he in essence says, Hey, by the way, do you remember that whole throwing the rocks and dust and insult thing? Do you remember all that? He goes, he goes you know, he goes, I was wrong. Did I mention that I was wrong in all of that? Uh, I shouldn't have done that, really didn't mean it. But, you know, I'm hoping that with me carrying your bags, that bygones can be bygones and we'll just put all of this behind us. Well, there's another guy that's walking with them, a man by the name of Abishai. This is our little pit bull that we learned about a couple of chapters ago. This is the guy that always wants to kill Saul and his relatives. In fact, he wanted to kill Abishai when Abishai was throwing rocks and throwing dirt. He wanted to pin him with a spear. And he says, give me an opportunity. I need only once to be able to do it. And he wanted to kill him, but David in his grace wouldn't allow him to kill this Abishai. And so now, excuse me, um, um, the, uh, Shimei, these names are not easy. It's like whitekowski And so, so he comes to him and, and Abishai turns to him in verse 21 and says, Shall not Shimei be put to death because he cursed the Lord's anointed Now, everybody recognizes right now that if anybody deserves death because of the rebellion of the king, it would be Shimei. Would you agree? This guy was awful to him when he left. He's awful when he comes back because everybody sees through this charade. This man, there is no mention of him being truly repentant. He doesn't submit to David out of love. He's doing it out of his own selfish convenience for his own, for his own, um, Uh, well-being. He felt that it was in his benefit to follow Absalom and to curse David in chapter 16, and now that Absalom is dead and David has, has the power, he sees it beneficial now to be able to follow David. But there is no true affections. There is no true submission to the king. It's all because he thinks it will better himself in having a relationship with the king, and that's it. Well, how does David respond to somebody like that? That insincere. Verse 23 we see, And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. That's grace. We see Shimeis. There are Shimeis in every church, in every town, in every state, in every country in the world. There are people amongst God's church, true church, who have truly been regenerated and born again, repented, and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who come and are a part of the fellowship. They, they listen to the Bible studies. They listen to preaching. They, they may give. They may even serve. But the truth of the matter is, there's no sincerity in their being there. They just think in their minds, you know, life is hard. It's difficult. You need a little bit of religion, a little bit of God in your life. And if you do enough things, then he's going to be good enough for you. And, and he'll help you through the difficult times of life. You know what that's called? That's called insincerity. We come not because we want God to serve us. We come simply because we want God. We want Him and we want to be able to serve Him and it doesn't matter whether He gives us anything or not because He's already given us everything that we ultimately need. And so there are people like that who come to a, to a church week in and week out and the truth of the matter is, is they're, they're insincere. They, they may come and experience some of the warmth of the fellowship but they're never set on fire. They may claim a, 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 a type of godliness but yet they deny its power altogether. And what does God do for folks like that? Does he rip them out of the congregation? Does he expose them and put their names up on the screens and go, these are the tares amongst the wheat? No. In fact, he even told the church in the New Testament, be very careful because when you gather together and when you're a body of Christ, there's going to be wheat, which are true believers, and there are going to be tares who are, who are not true believers, who are going to be all a mix. He says, but don't go ripping them out because if you rip out the tares, you may take some of the wheat with you and you may cause great damage. He goes, let them lie. And then at the very end of time, he goes, I'll come back and I'll do the separating from the wheat and the tares. Why is he saying wait until the end? Because he's gracious. His desire is to be so good to you. If you're here or there today and you fall into that category, to be so good to you that his goodness will lead you to genuine repentance. And we could sit back and we could go, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, that's great. I, I got by point, four, point number one and And the truth is, I'm a believer, but isn't there parts of insincerity in you and I? There are parts when we come and we worship, but the truth of the matter is our hearts are a million miles away. We sing and we praise and we pray and we seek the Bible, but the truth is the intensity of our prayers and the intensity of the reading of the Bible has nothing to do with really seeking who he is, but instead it's because we have some troubles in our life and we're just hoping that if we pray hard enough that he's going to ultimately bail us out. And so it's not just for lost people. There's oftentimes that there's this shimei kind of insincerity within our lives. But you know how God, what God does with people like that? He's gracious to them. He's gracious to you and to me. And through his love, he draws us back once again. Amen? Now, there's a second thing that we see in this is that second thing that we see here is God's grace is given to the sincere. It's not only given to the insincere, but to the sincere. We're introduced. The very next guy that David meets when he comes into town is a man by the name of Mephibosheth. Now, if you don't know who that is, let me give you a quick update. Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. Saul was the arch enemy of David. Uh, David never raised a hand towards Saul, but Saul constantly wanted to kill David out of envy and out of jealousy. Well, finally, Saul is put to death. And when he's put to death, he, he, in, in, in essence, David comes to the throne. And what was normative during the time is if you come to the throne, then you wipe out all the relatives of the former regime and the former king so that they no longer pose a threat and they can't rebel and rise up against you. But David doesn't do it. Instead, he does just the opposite. He seeks out the relatives, which there were basically only one Mephibosheth, who was a lame man who was out in exile. He calls him to be able to come and he extends incredible mercy to him he brings him back in, invites him in, even allows him to eat at the table, and then takes all of the riches that his father, his grandfather used to have, Saul, and he gave it all to Mephibosheth. This was an amazing, extraordinary demonstration of grace. And so what happens there? Well, the last time we heard about Mephibosheth, we didn't hear good things. See, when David was out in exile, we write about this back in chapter 17, there was a man by the name of Ziba, and Ziba was actually basically the chief servant of Saul when he was alive. And he began to serve Mephibosheth after that, after a command of David. And he finds Zeba, and while he's out in the wilderness, they don't have any food and they don't have any transportation or help. And so Zeba gives him all this food and gives him all this transportation, helps them in the midst of their plight away from Absalom. And, and David remembered that and he was appreciative of that. And he asked Zeba, he said, He says, Where is my servant Mephibosheth? Why didn't why didn't he follow along from Jerusalem? And and Zeba flat out lies. He tells him, he says, he didn't want to come. In fact, he didn't want to follow you anymore. Instead, what he wants to do is he wants to follow Absalom because he thinks his life is going to be better and he's going to take part in the power of Abs- that Absalom had. And David was crushed. And David was so angry that he sits there and he says, you know what, everything that Absalom had, I'm now giving to you, Ziba. All of that land, all of that wealth is now yours. It's taken away from Mephibosheth. Well, now, guess what? He runs into Mephibosheth. This might be another one of those really awkward moments. There's Mephibosheth, and the Bible says about him, verse 24, here's how he described him. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that King David until the day he came back in safety. So when David left and he remained, he didn't take a shower. He didn't brush his teeth. He didn't cut his hair. I don't know what it means that he didn't care for his feet, but that's disgusting, whatever it is. So he just he just goes and he comes back. I mean, he looks like hot garbage when he comes back. He's just looking. He's like, Ugh. and he's like, dude, wh- what happened to you, right? Wh- what's going on with you? Wh- why didn't you Why didn't you follow me? And and, and then Mephibosheth finally begins to be able to tell him. He says, I, w- I wanted to come. I even sent for for a donkey to be able to come so I could follow you and to be able to pursue you. And he goes, but but Ziba wouldn't send the donkey. And I was left. You know that I'm a lame man. He's letting him know that I'm dependent on other people, that I have shortfalls and shortcoming. And even though I desire to come, I fell short to do what I want because of the condition that I'm ultimately in. And David looks at this man and he sees that that, that he's telling the truth. How does he know? Because of his appearance. What, what Mephibosheth chose to do is even though he couldn't physically be with David on the run in exile, he decided to be with him in spirit. And he decided if David's not gonna have the comforts of home, I'm not gonna have the comfort of home. So he didn't bathe and he didn't cut his hair and he didn't do whatever he was supposed to do with his feet. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And this would have been in great danger, put him in great danger with with the king at the time, with Absalom, because Absalom would have seen him doing this and understood that his heart was actually still with David even though he wasn't actually physically with him. And David sees this and understands the sincerity of his heart, even though he fell short. And, and what David decides to do is he then says, well, from here on out, I'm going to take half of what Zeba gives and I'm going to give it over to you. And you struggle with that part. You're like, Ziba was a liar. But at the same time, he was a helpful liar. And so there's David still being gracious. He should have put David to, or Ziba to death because of his lies of what he did. But instead, he still allowed him to be able to receive half of all that Saul had. And then he gave the others, other half to Mephibosheth, who fell short. But yet there is some sincerity in what he was ultimately doing. It's amazing that Shimei, when we speak of him, he, did, he cared nothing about David, only for himself. Ziba, in this passage, was willing to lie or whatever he could for his own selfish gain, and yet Mephibosheth cared only for David and nothing for himself, but he was still in need of grace. Even the sincere heart falls short. Sometimes we say, where there is a will, there is also a way, but that's just simply not true. No matter how much he wanted to be able to pursue after the king, his physical ailments kept him from being able to do so. Do you see the grace here for you and I? There are some times that I am insincere. You are insincere in our pursuit of Christ. Just, you don't even have to, look, after the service, I say, what point meant to you? You probably won't even say this insincere part because I'm very sincere. Wrong, you're insincere, just like I am as well, oftentimes. But there are times as well that you and I are crazy sincere in our pursuit after Christ. And it's not because of us, it's because of what God has done in us. That he's changed our heart and he's given us a new spirit and he's placed his spirit inside of us and he's given us a new heart to long with him and to be able to pursue him. But you know what I can't figure out? As much as I want to do that, I fall many times and in many ways. And the reason is because I'm still in this sinful flesh. I still fall short. And the sinful flesh at the same exact type keeps me from doing what I ultimately do. If you think that I'm alone, I'm not Paul said in Romans chapter and verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. What I do, but I do the very things that I hate. You ever get to that point? Look, we've got men and women in this place. Women, ladies, am I, women, is that a right thing? Ladies, beloved, I don't know, female, I don't know, anyway, you guy, you? no, I can't say you guys, because that would be wrong. Anyway, here's my point. Some women are so, so hard on yourself. The pressures that women place on themselves is mind-blowing. To try to have it all together, to look a certain way, to care for their home, to raise their children, to watch after their, their, their husband, to make sure that everything is together, to make sure that their children have shoes on when they get to church. My wife doesn't struggle with that at all. But, but these are the things that they go through. And, and, and many times sitting there, and this is, this is what your wife, man, will, will tell you. As hard as they pursue, they fall short. And oftentimes, all they can think of is where they fell short. They can't see the 99% of the times when they're hitting out of the park. They just sit back and go, I tried, I'm sincere. I want to be this. I want to be a godly woman. I want to be a faithful witness. I want to be able to care for other people. I want to be the godly woman as the word of God talks about. I want to love my husband and submit to his leadership as God has called me to. But I just fall short. The encouragement to you is God extends grace to people just like you. And man, you're the same exact way. You're here and you're like, well, it's Father's Day. Praise God he hasn't talked a whole lot about fathers. We've talked about fathers the whole time. And we talk about it now because, man, I understand that some of you, and it's not because of your own boastfulness, it's not because of who you are, it's because our good God has changed your heart where you want to lead your family and you want to be a godly man and you want to be able to pursue Him. But there are some times like you, you sit there and go, man, the harder I try, the more I seem to, f- to stumble and fall. And God sits there and says, my grace is sufficient for you. What an amazing God. I told you, it's sweet. Now there's a there's a third part to this, and that is that God that grace is given to satisfy. It's a little bit different, but the point is there. There's another gentleman that that he runs into. His his name is Bar, Barzillai, not Godzilla. Barzillai, and um, and he comes along. And in, in in chapter 17, he actually helped David as well when when David was in Mahanaim. Uh, which is where they were preparing for a battle against David. Uh, David, again, needed supplies, needed food, and he was a rich man. And he ended up giving a bunch of things to David and to his men for them to be able to survive. Well, at this particular point, when David's about to cross over, this man uh, ends up traveling some 50 miles from his home just to come and welcome David back. 50 miles. 50 miles basically either walking or on a donkey, probably not walking, he's old, he's 80 years old, but on a donkey, he comes all the way down or being pulled by a chair, whatever it is, comes 80 miles to be able to come just to be able to welcome David back. David sees him, he remembers his goodness, and he goes, you know, I wanna reward you. Here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna bring you back to the hoppinest city in the world. I'm gonna give you the greatest high rise right next to my palace. I'm gonna give you the greatest food and the greatest entertainment for the rest of the days of your life. Now, the rest of us would be sitting there and go, sold, and we're good. This man sits back, 80 years old, and sits there and goes, I appreciate it, I'm good. I'm good just the way that I am, not, not, not a problem at all. I really don't need all that. You know, I'm an older gentleman, and I didn't really know this until then, and if this is true, don't tell me, but apparently to this, when you get older, something happens to your taste buds, and that's an awful thing for me. I'm not looking forward to that, but he sits there and he goes, you know, the food's not gonna taste the same. And, you know, the entertainment, my hearing's a little off, and, you know, the entertainment of the men and women singing, and I'm just not, just won't do anything for me. You know what you could do? I've got a relative, that, who we think it is, and he said, why don't you just take them and do all the stuff that you said that you were going to do for me, and go for them. You know what I want to do? I just want to go home. I just want to go home and, you know, really end up being buried in the tomb of my mom and my dad. That's really all that I want to do. And you sit there and you think to yourself, where's the grace in this? I don't really see necessarily David's grace to them, but I see the grace through the whole thing. And it is the grace to be satisfied. Here is a man that is offered everything by the king, and he goes, I don't need it. I don't even want it. Now, we do know that he wanted something. And he want, and it had to do with the relationship with the king. He wanted to serve the king. That's what he did. Even older in his age, he took all of his wealth and he put it on the line for the, for the well-being of the king. And then he ends up traveling, as old as he is, 50 miles just to come to honor the king and to be able to honor him back home. So something is important to him. The key is the only thing that is important to him is the king. Everything else just fades away. I'm telling you that one of the greatest graces that God can extend to us is for you and I to be fully satisfied and nothing and no one except for him alone. Do you know how much I desire that? To not pick up my iPad or my iPhone and look for the next truck or feel the pull of the next house or the next thing or, 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 or what kind of retirement and what would that look like and that pull that's constantly there. In the moment that you end up, you ever buy something and you sit there and you go, well, this is really, really good. And then you're like, oh, I could have gotten a better deal on this. Oh my goodness, now now I'm depressed about the new wonderful thing that I've just gotten. I would love to be freed of that one day. This man was freed of that. He didn't care about any of this stuff anymore. Man, can you imagine how different your life and my life and how we would lead in our home if we were just fully and completely satisfied in the person of God? we would lead differently, would we not? We wouldn't lead by just thinking, what can we buy and what can we get? And I understand there's all healthy things in there as well as providing for a family, but let's be really honest. Trying to provide for your family is a whole lot different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about driven because I'm not satisfied in anything, and you won't be, and I won't be. But to be able to get to the grace to come to the point where you sit there and go, I'm good, I don't need anything else, Really, all I need is him. Paul was a guy who had found himself doing this. Do you remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and found in him. The sad part for me this this week is... I've come to the conclusion, I'm not there. But I want to be. And so I begin to pray this prayer this week, a prayer that David himself had prayed. And I want to commit this to memory this week. And maybe you want to memorize it as well. I don't know. If you're like, I can't memorize anything, well then that's fine. Just read it over and over again. Tattoo it on your arm. Just kidding. Don't do that. But here's what it says. Now I'm going to read out of the NIV because I like the way that it reads. Psalm 63, 1 through 4. Listen to how David speaks of God. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. and a dry and parched land where there is no water. He says, "'I crave the one person that can satisfy "'because nothing in this world satisfies, none of it. "'I have seen you in the sanctuary "'and beheld your power and your glory "'because your love is better than life. "'My lips will glorify you. "'I will praise you as long as I live, "'and in your name I will lift up my hands.'" Man, will that be our prayer today? That we will pray over everything else. I want you to be my all in all. Extend me the grace today, God, to be able to make sure that there is nothing that I cherish like you. There's nothing that I pursue like you. I am not there. And I guarantee that most of you are not there. But this is the grace that God has for us. And here's the key. I don't want to wait until I've tried everything in this world and now everything has left to emptiness and, and I just sit back and go, I tried everything even like Solomon did and said, you know, it's, it's just all worthless. There's nothing to it. I want it now to come to that point. I don't want to come to the point where the rest of my life until 80 years old, I'm driven by the pursuit of all those things to realize that they are nothing and say that God's the only one that's satisfied. I want it 48 years of age, sorry, 47 years of age to be able to sit back and go, God is enough. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We glorify you and who you are, what you've done. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. God, there are some who would perhaps, without even knowing it, have been insincere, not seeking you for just who you are, but seeking what you can do for them to make their life better. God, you have been patient, but I pray right now that you extend saving grace to them. God, there are some here that just need to be encouraged. Men and women alike and young people have been working and clawing and moving and doing all they can just to try to grasp, just to try to do what is right. They want to follow you, but yet they have fallen short and your grace is sufficient for them. And God, I just pray for all of us, again, that you will just as you're patient with us and merciful with us, that, God, you would grant our prayer, that we do seek you with everything and we'd be satisfied with you above all else. Grant us that prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? I'm gonna be standing down here, love to talk with you, pray. If you wanna know more about this salvation deal, I wanna talk with you about that. If you just need prayer or you need to pray yourself, the altar is open as we just take a few moments to respond as we say, go ahead,